It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am delighted to have as my guest today, Linda Beagle Shulman. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I first met Linda in 2018. She's a Long Island mom who lost her son, a 35-year-old geography teacher named Scott Beagle, in the Parkland shooting on Valentine's Day of 2018. So it was shortly after that that we first met, and I was so struck by your ability to get up on that stage and talk to people about what had happened to you. And having been with you at many events since then, you will always say how many days it's been since your son was murdered. Correct. Why is that number so important, do you think, to you and to for people to hear? Because it's just never ending. It's just every single day for the rest of my life. It's one more day that has gone by since I've spoken to my son. Yeah. And you've done a lot of activism, a lot of fundraising for sending kids to summer camp because that's, that was really Scott's passion through childhood and through adulthood. The thing that strikes me, and I don't know obviously what it's like for you, but if I try to put myself in your position, there seemed to be one shooting after another after another to the point where when we think back to Columbine, we remember all those details and it was such a wake up call for the entire country. But then you have, oh, there's, you know, there's Uvalde. And then there's those basketball players from UVA. Then there's the shooting in Colorado at the club. And then there's the Walmart. And it's just like, oh, you, you, it's almost like you lose track. How is that for you, the sense that perhaps we as a culture, as a society, as a country are becoming desensitized to this sort of thing? We're becoming normalized. It's something normal. And we say we don't accept it but we are accepting it. We cannot keep doing the same thing that we're doing over and over again. So there's a shooting. It's on the news. We hear about it that day, that night, maybe the next day. Mm-hmm. And we say, oh, my God. We say, you know, oh, we send thoughts and prayers mm-hmm. and all of that. And then we go on. We keep doing the same thing over and over. I believe it's Einstein who said, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you're insane. Right. So, you know, to me, we need to do something different. And I think... We need to do a little bit of show and tell. Mm. I think that we need people to see. We need people to see what really happens in a mass shooting, not to hear the media tell us, oh, you know, this might be disturbing, so you might want to turn away. No, don't turn away. See what's going on. I just sat at the trial of my son's murderer, and it started July 18th, and I sat there in the courtroom, and we listened to the medical examiner talk about the bullets from an AR-15 and how, for myself, how they entered my son's body and what they did and what organ that they pierced and which bullet it was that actually killed him. We saw autopsy reports. We saw, we actually had to sit there in the courtroom with the murderer right across from us and see the AR-15. The public needs to see, you know, the tobacco industry, we beat the tobacco industry. And years ago, I mean, years ago, 
When I was little, you know, my mom would give me a quarter and say, go to the machine and get me a Newport. Yeah. I would have never thought that we could have today where you couldn't smoke in public. If you told somebody that, they think you were crazy or you couldn't smoke on a plane. Mm -hmm. But we got statistics and we showed the public on, we talked on radio, we showed them on TV, we showed them people with their lungs, what their lungs look like. We hear that commercial with this woman in September going, I have to start cooking now for November. Yeah. We need to show the public what's happening, what really happens in a mass shooting. We need to take maybe some of our elected officials or our politicians, mm -hmm. and we need to take them and have them go identify the our loved ones' bodies at the morgue. Mm. Maybe people would open their eyes. What do you think needs to be done? Is there a solution, or is, this, is it just too far gone? Is society so sick that we can metabolize these incidents and then just move on and live our lives? Or do you think there's a solution? There has to be a solution. We cannot continue to live like this. There has to be a solution, okay? Truth has to be told, mm. and we the people have to speak up. Laura, we have to speak up. We cannot leave it to our legislators. We have to make our voices heard. We have to be talking and, and be protesting quietly, but protesting, mm -hmm. letting people know what really happens to us. We need, listen, there are so many gun owners that believe that we have the right to be safe. We yeah. have the right to live without fear. They don't want these mass shootings. Right. They believe in safe storage. They believe in background checks. We need those people to work with us, mm -hmm. to show everyone, to show our politicians, our elected officials, just what we want done. We have to be able to do something about this or every day it's just going to become more magnified. You know, you raise a really good point and it's part of the reason why this issue is so divisive and kind of black and white when it really isn't when you talk to real people. It's not like gun owners versus everybody no. else. There are so many sensible gun owners who don't understand why somebody wants an a whatever they're called, you know, a military grade weapon, an AK-47 or whatever it may be, AR-15. And so why is it that sort of the sensible people don't feel empowered to talk about it? Are they afraid of taking a side or being a lightning rod or something like that? What, why is that? I really don't know. I don't really have the answer. I just think that people, you know, individuals think, you know, what can I do? What can yeah. I do? There's nothing I can do. This is basically, this is the way it is. There's nothing I can do. There's a lot you can do. And this should not just be, this is the way it is. You know, so many of those groups, whether it's Mom's Demand, whether mm -hmm. it's Every Town, whether it's Brady, so many gun owners really belong to those groups yeah, that are trying to help. And if we could just get them all together, get us all together, we could get something done. We could definitely get rid of the epidemic of gun violence. We really can. I mean, look at the other countries. Mm -hmm. The citizens of other countries, they won't put up with that. The yeah. people who live in other countries, they won't put up with that. Yeah. You know what? They have a mass shooting and right away, that's it. It's done. That's not going to happen again. Right. They won't put up with it. Right. For some reason, we put up with it. I can't imagine what it was like to sit in the trial. And there were probably a lot of other families whose loved ones had been murdered. 17, 17. were killed. Three adults, including your son. Right. And the rest were children. Yes. Teenagers from freshman to senior. I imagine a lot of those families were there right with you in the trial. Yes. Many were there. There was a group of us that were there, you know, more than others. We probably would have been there every day had we 
you know, if we lived in Florida, we, yeah. we would go back and forth because we worked. So we would go back and forth. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't in the courtroom, the courtroom was in the corner of my computer while I worked, yeah. you know, listening to the trial. And it was a long trial. It was a lot mm-hmm. to go through, four months or, or, or even more, right? We learned about every nook and cranny in that trial to the point where my husband and I would speak in the car as we were going to the courtroom every day. And then on our way home, there wasn't a word said between the two of us because you actually had to process what was going on that, you know, in the court that day. But And um, so much that you didn't know. So much we didn't know. As a matter of fact, we learned so much that when sentencing came, not sentencing, actually when the verdict came, not sentencing, when the verdict came, it was like Scott being murdered again. It was like him being murdered all over again. Tell, you know, after us, the after the initial why. after the initial I'm sorry, after the initial shooting, you go through this horrible process. For me, I moved on, but I left most of it inside. Those feelings were inside, but I moved on because I felt like I was never going to mourn Scott's death. I was going to celebrate his life. And I guess the way my own mourning if that's what you want to call it, and celebrating was going out and being an advocate for gun safety. Mm -hmm. But when I sat through that trial, I never realized what it was going to do to me, Mm. what it was actually going to do to me inside, Mm. being at the trial and sitting there and seeing the murderer 30 feet away from me or seeing that AR-15 that he used to murder my son and listening. I couldn't imagine what it did to me. And then at sentencing, it was really like Scott being murdered again, going through it again, but going through it knowing so much more than I knew to Mm. start with. Mm. Was that because the animal, if I can use that word, didn't get the death penalty? Is that why you felt that way? Or was it just the fact of a sentence of a punctuation point? I think it was a culmination of everything I learned. And, you know, you listen to the defense because that's their job. Okay, and we listened to the state's attorneys, and our state's attorneys were unbelievable. But not only were they unbelievable in the courtroom, because nobody could have been better in the courtroom. Mm. They proved every fact. They proved every aggravating factor. But they were so human as well. And mm. when you have... Wow people around you that are so human, that listen to you, that answer all your questions. For me, it was, they became family. And so it was like an entire family at sentencing, just wow, trying to process everything that we had just been through. It was amazing. But I don't think that the end result, him not getting the death penalty was unbelievable to all of us at the time. Was everyone surprised? We were all shocked. Okay. We were all shocked. This was the perfect death penalty case. There was no better death. There will never be a better death penalty case. But trying to find the glass half full, I have to tell you Mm. in retrospect, if the murderer would have gotten the death penalty, I think the average in Florida is like 18 years before he's actually put to death mm. between the appeals and back and forth mm. and so on and so, so he's forth. he's in and out of he's in, right. knee and experiences. for every time that you're in the courtroom, the murderer gets to be in the courtroom. So in all that time, you think about it, he was in the Broward County Jail, which was like a hotel at that point compared to 
the maximum security prison that he's in right now. Yeah. And he was in the courtroom. He was in the courtroom for jury. He was in the courtroom the whole time. So think about all the time that he wasn't in his cell. Yeah. Now, looking back, now that he got, you know, he didn't get the death penalty and his life in prison without parole. Now he has to look over in maximum security prison. Mm -hmm. He has to look over his shoulder every single second of his life. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, he is as miserable as you can be. He and will know terror with no break. Right. Right now. Yeah. And I have to imagine the other people in the prison know who he is and what he did. Right. I give him, well, he's probably more secure right now for the next couple of months because, I mean, he's under a tremendous amount of security right now. And I think for the, you know, we know what his cell looks like and we know where he is. And I think when he finally got out of what I would call for him, you know, the Broward County Jail and he went to prison, I think, you know, it was like, oh, my God, this is real. This is I real. mean, there's a there's a commode in his cell. There's a sink in his cell. There's a bed in his cell. And from what I understand, he probably wants to hang himself right now. So they're yeah. probably taking away his pillows and his sheets. But this, if there's any justice, this is justice. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And just so the listeners know, he was sentenced to 34 consecutive life sentences. Is that correct? Yes. With no chance of parole. No chance ever. of parole. So there's just, there's no hope. What was it like being in the same courtroom with him for all that time? How was that? In the beginning, in the very beginning, or most of the trial, he had a mask on. He could snicker and whatever it was. He has no remorse. He has no remorse. He just has no remorse. As a matter of fact, we know that in his jail cell, he would doodle and he would doodle AR-15s on the jail wow. cell walls. He That's also, really you know, um, made threats towards the judge and towards certain people. I mean, he, he, he had an altercation with the guards in jail. He is really an evil, evil person. And for me, I never thought that inside of me, I could harbor such hatred. Mm. And I used to go back with my husband in the car. And when we got back to where we, we were staying, I said to him, I said, you know, it, it's really ugly. The hatred inside, the ugliness inside. And at sentencing, we got to give impact statements. We got to speak at sentencing. One time during the trial, we were able to speak to the jury, but we had confines of what we could and couldn't say. As a matter of fact, whatever we wanted to say had to be written out. And the state's attorneys and the defense attorneys had to okay it. Certain oh, wow. words you couldn't use and so on and so forth. And you were not speaking to the murderer. You were speaking to the jury about your loved one. Mm. Very different. So that's very prescribed. Very but at sentencing, the gloves were off and you could say whatever you wanted. I decided that I was going to talk to the murderer. I have talked for all that time. I think at that time it was 1,723 days, mm -hmm. the day of sentencing. Yeah, and, that's right. I just um, have my notes here. Yep. And I decided I had spoken about Scott and I will continue to speak about Scott. But I had spoken about Scott many forever. And just for the record, for people listening, it is all about Scott. At every event, at every 
fundraiser, whatever it is, it is of celebrating him and his life. Always. And I feel like I know him from the slideshows and the speeches and the testimonials and just, just the feeling. Mm -hmm. But go on. Yeah, it's, it's all about Scott. Even my advocacy for gun safety is all about Scott. Yeah. Scott and I talked about it so many times. But at sentencing, I spoke to the murderer. Yeah. I spoke directly to him. And I told him, and I believed it, and I said it to Michael, my husband, the very first day of the trial. I said, this is what I believe. And I actually said it at sentencing. I said, life in prison without parole or the death penalty, okay, were not justice. None of them. Justice would be if the 17 families each got a bullet and we each got that AR-15 loaded that AR-15 with one bullet and we pulled straws and each of us went to make sure that we hurt him the way he hurt our loved ones. And the last person, number 17, who was lucky enough to pick that straw, wow. got to sh make sure that they shot him dead because that's what he did to our loved ones. He went up and down the hallways and if he didn't kill them the first time, he went back and made sure they were dead the next time. Mm. And so to me, you know, you asked me before, you know, about what we think we can do. I happen to believe that assault weapons ban should be such a no-brainer. A no-brainer, mm -hmm. okay? A no-brainer. Nobody should be able to have that. That is a weapon of war, mm -hmm. okay? We're not saying, we're just, we're just going to talk about the assault weapons ban. And you want to know something? I think that if people really saw what I heard and what we saw in photos, mm -hmm. there was one young man who was killed. Okay, I will leave out his name. Mm -hmm. The murderer went down the hall, shot him a couple of times, but he wasn't dead. And when he came back, that young man put his hand in front of his face, like, please don't shoot me. So his hand for anybody who can't see, obviously was speaking, right in front of his face, please don't shoot me. The murderer shot his hand it went through his head, and the medical examiner said, quote, unquote, the bullet from the AR-15 went off like a cherry bomb in his head, and the only thing left was his scalp holding his head together. People need to see that mm. because you see something like that, and that assault, that there would be an assault weapons ban like that. That's mm -hmm. why I say show and tell. Mm -hmm. There's no reason for that weapon to be out there for civilians. And the conversation right now is so theoretical. It's all theory and ideas and philosophies and, you know, how I feel about this. But it's not really based on that reality that you're talking about. Show and tell. Yeah. So enough about the animal. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Scott. And I have this vision in my head of him with the, the baseball hat, the sunglasses, the whistle. And, I, you know... Anyone who's lost, and I think everyone has lost someone that they love at some point in their life, can relate to how you feel. But it seems that you and your husband, Michael, are intent on having the goodness that he exemplified in his life continue and have ripple effects. Tell us how you do that. Tell us, I want to know, number one, how you have the strength to do it because you have to be with him so much and be with that loss so much, how you have the strength to do it. And then number two, I want to hear what it is that it is, what the goodness is, what the benefits are in the wider world, what the ripple effects are. Scott's always with me. So whatever I do, we do together. Yeah. The Scott J. Beagle Memorial Fund. Scott went to camp starting when he was seven. 
And he went through till he was 35. Wow. And he'd still be going. He went for 28 years. He was the youngest camper in camp. And he actually went into teaching so he could continue to go back to camp. We used to say, Scott, you can't get a job, quit the job, go to camp, be at camp. Right. Can't, it doesn't work like that. And Scott loved working with children, loved working with the underdogs. I think I've told you the story once before where Scott went to South Africa and he taught for two months. Mm -hmm. He volunteered. And um, he came home with no suitcases, went with two, came home with none. Mm. And I was like the mother going, oh, my God, you were gone for two months. Oh my, we, and they lost your suitcase. I can't believe it. He went like, mom, mom. Calm down. You know, with the hand, mom. Yeah. Okay. He said, here in the United States, especially here in New York, they pray for snow days. There, they're banging on the gates. They, need, they want to get into school. They can't wait to get in. Here, they're worried about what style Nikes they have. They're, they're happy to have shoes. He said, Mom, I, they needed my clothes way more than me. Them away. And for me, you know, Scott did not grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He did not. And I always told both my kids, let's not forget from where we came, okay, because I think that's very important. And so loving kids the way he did, especially the less fortunate, we decided that what would Scott want more than anything else. He'd want to help them. So what we did was two days after his murder, I looked at Michael and I said, I want to do two things. One is I want to do some sort of a, a fund for Scott. I want a memorial fund for him. And then two not, days, two days. Wow. I said, I want to have a memorial fund for him. I said, and you know what? I'm going to, I said, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to get legislation passed in Scott's name. Mm. Laura, I literally had no idea what I was talking about, okay? Did All, you know I had no, I had no, or? I knew nobody, but to me it was like, because of the of what had happened, because of what we were living through, we need to do something and we need to put it in his name. I had mm -hmm. no idea. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the, the camp part was the easier part. So what we did was we decided to send at-risk, underserved children touched by gun violence to summer sleepaway camp. And the bottom line is today, at that time, it wasn't even how it is today. What child hasn't been touched by gun violence? There's not one. It doesn't mean that you are someone in your family. Is, but what you go to school. Mm -hmm. You have lockdown drills. Mm -hmm. Everybody, every child's been touched by gun violence. Mm -hmm. So for me, and I know it, and it might sound a little crazy, every child that we send to camp, every child that the Scott J.B. Memorial Fund sends to camp, has a piece of Scott's heart in them. There's no doubt in my mind. We send them from seven and eight, and we send them year after year, the same child, and then we add children to it. So like the first year we sent 54, we sent the same 54 the second year, mm -hmm. and the second year we sent 165. Wow. And then we had the pandemic, which we provided, we gave a grant to one of, the, a $25,000 grant to one of the camps that we work with so they could have it virtually. We had packets for them. And then last year we sent those same 165 and we sent 212 children to summer sleepaway camp. Hmm. Every child has a piece of Scott's heart in him. Mm -hmm. I know that. And that's how you do it. And so you, we work hard and there are times I said, I'm like, oh my gosh, do we have to, do we have to keep this? Do we have to do this? Do we have to do this today? But then I go up to camp. We mm -hmm. go up to camp every summer. We visit the camps. We have six camps. We're actually adding one more. Mm. But we go up to camp. We visit those kids. And that's what it's all about. And that's why we do it. And that's why we beg for money. And that's why we 
go and go out and tell people, you know, this is what we do. And that's why we have a run for Beagle mm -hmm. and a remembering Scott. You are, I mean, remembering Scott was amazing. It's our big fundraiser. And listen, anyone who knows about fundraisers, for me especially, it's like, Mike, can we just give the money and not have to go? Because you said it, come on, fundraisers can be like, oh yeah. my God, you know, yes. one after that. So I decided that I can't be a hypocrite, so I'm going to have a fundraiser that's not like that. And we did. We took the theme from Scott's Bar Mitzvah, which was Carna Vegas. Mm -hmm. We did Carnival. We did Las Vegas. There was no sitting down, no big speeches. Everybody was interactive. Yeah, remember? it was really fun. I took pictures of Scott from time. his bar mitzvah. We, they were all over the place. Yeah, it and was really fun, festive, light. And the only time we really sat was for dessert and to give out the grants to the camps. Yeah. And it just, and Scott was there. Scott's always there. Scott's here. Yeah. I mean, he's he's just always here. And I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I do have a box over my heart. And the lid is really tight. Yeah. And every once in a while, the lid comes off, you know, yeah. like Scott's birthday, Thanksgiving. I cannot do Thanksgiving on Thursday. I've mm. never done Scott Thanksgiving without Scott. So I decided since in my office, we're off on Friday and the people who come for me for Thanksgiving have Friday off. I said, I'm going to cook all day Thursday because I like Thanksgiving. It's my I, I just it's my favorite holiday. And we're going to have Thanksgiving on Friday. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do mm -hmm. because I can't. I mean, yeah. that's one of those I can't, it's hard. you know, I know, you know, or, or hearing Scott say, mom, you know, are you making apple pie? Mom? You got to make apple pie. <laughs> last year was since the murder was the first, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But last year I, I did. And this year I did. But there mm. are days. Mm. But you keep the lid closed. You yes, have to keep you it closed. You do. You do. I completely get that. So you are people know you. You're. Pretty famous on Long Island, if I may say, you know, the, in the political world, whether it's Republican or Democrat, it doesn't really matter. People know who you are. Is it strange now to sort of be in that world and to, to have friends and acquaintances in that political world? Or is it, does it just feel normal? I always say, it. I'm just me. Mm -hmm. You may see me that way. And people, other people see me that way. And my, my husband may see me that way. But I'm just me. I don't see me that way. I really don't. I have met so many people that I probably would have never met before. I have made so many good friends yeah. that I would have never had. But look at you and I. I, I mean, know. you know, I've made so many genuine friends and everybody is so supportive. I don't feel like people come to any of our fundraisers as a hafta. That's a word. My, Absolutely. You know, my word and Scott, H-A-V-T-A-H. -A -A I'll get that in the dictionary <laughs> hefta, one day. Hefta. No haftas, you know, one is, but no hafta. But I don't feel like it's a hafta. I don't think that people say, oh, you know, we have to go. We, you know, Linda Beagle Shulman's having a fundraiser. We have to go. I don't feel that. I feel the love. I feel the support. And it's not just Democrats. No, I, there are not. so. I mean, there are so many, you know, I'm gray. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not all the way left. I'm not all the way right. I'm literally in the middle. Mm -hmm. I always said that, you know, the left, if the left and the right would come together in the middle, we'd have compromise. Mm -hmm. If we'd have compromise, we wouldn't have what we have today in mm -hmm. society. That's right. Society is just, it's not happy. It's not no, a happy society. It doesn't feel happy. It's mm -hmm. very combative. Mm -hmm. And I think that if everybody would just take a step towards the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Calm down. Take a step towards the middle and see what you can do. It's unbelievable. It's getting all like. Furious. 
riled up and yelling. And but you did that. You did that for years. You did that. You listen. Let's call it like it is. The first time I spoke ever was we were at a women's luncheon. Mm-hmm. I remember. In I South had County. never been to one before. You spoke before me. I sat there going in my mind, my inner monologue was, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't speak after her. I can't do this. And I remember when we were done going up to you and I'm telling you, you, and I will say it to the world, you have been my role model from day one, from day one. Anytime I need anything, anytime I needed advice for something, you have speaking after you, watching your, how you speak, watching how you do things. The only thing I can't do that I really can't get is how you can speak without notes. I can't, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't understand that. It's I always have to have you make it. I don't know how to do it. But seriously, Lori, you have, you have taught me so much. And this is such so an much honor. To me. Thank you. Because I feel the same way about you. I mean, I started out this conversation by saying, I, you got up there and you spoke. That was your first one. First. So eloquently, so passionately, so humanly. I don't know how, you know, I feel like I couldn't match that. But I had notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just want to revisit something else we were talking about at the beginning. And that is, it reminds me of those old movies with the calendar pages coming off. And I feel like every day, you know, there's another one. There's something horrible, something horrible, something horrible. And I, I remember reading the newspaper about the Uvalde thing and losing it. I can't imagine how you feel. How do we, as a society, not desensitize ourselves to this kind of insane violence? How do we remember like, oh, I can't keep track of this. Was it this one or that one? Was it the club or the Walmart? I can't remember. How do we remember that there are human beings and families who were completely devastated in each and every single one of these incidents. How do we keep that in our heads? We stop being me people. We Mm. stop being, it's all about me. It's all about me. This can never happen to me, but it's all about me. People have to maybe stop. I don't know how you make them do it, but people have to stop and think, you know what? What would happen if it was me? How would I feel? Maybe reach out when there's another shooting. The first thing I do is I talk to my, I turn to Michael and I go, you know what? I really like to get on a plane and go down there. We did it at Pit, the Pittsburgh at, at, oh, the, the, tree uh, at the Tree of Life. I'd really like to get, I'd like to get uh, to go down. Yeah. First, you have to let the people, let it settle in a little because usually once the tragedy first starts, everybody's around you. Everybody's there. Media and everybody, everybody's media. there to help. Everybody's there. Everybody, there's a funeral and everybody's there and everybody's there to help. And then are busy. Yeah. And then one day, probably a month later, you wake up and it's real. And as I sit in front of you, even this many days and this many years, to me, it's still not real. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain. Mm -hmm. I know Scott's gone. I know he's murdered, but it's not real. And maybe that's how I can rationalize it or go Mm -hmm. forward. But it is real. And that's when those people really need you and really need somebody to reach out. And I I think that if people would reach in a little bit, 
instead of being me, me, me. And you know, oh my God, I got to go get my nails done. Or I have to go to the, the salon or I have to go here or I have to go, you know, to work. And Which we, you know, you have to go to work. But take a moment. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's not like we could say, okay, in this moment of the day, everybody has to take a moment right. and think. But if people could take a moment empathize. and process and empathize, it's like if we said, okay, at this time during the day, for this many five minutes, which is a very long time, believe it or not, sit still for five minutes. It's a very long time. Sit for five minutes and think about what these people are going through that you actually could go. I think people, if they could step out of their comfort zone. If you give yourself that minute, you can relate. You can can. empathize. You can. Because every single person has been touched by gun violence. It's not just the victims. It's not just the people who are murdered. It's not just the people who were hurt. It really, it goes out much further. You're touched by gun violence. You know me. Mm-hmm. You know me. Anyone who knows me and knows, mm-hmm. you know, what's going Every single person has been touched by gun violence in some way. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Kids having to do the lockdown drills and just part of life now. You know, if you know somebody, if you know somebody who was in the grocery store, if you knew somebody who was in, in the temple, if you knew somebody who was in the theater, Everybody, if or you, you know a first responder who who, who was uh, was on the scene or whatever. They was. are that victims. Let, let me tell you, first responders. I am very close with one of the people in the sheriff's department in Florida who was there the day that we had to go down on February fourteenth when we flew in to, when we didn't know if Scott was alive or dead. And he said to me that day, he took all my information. We we went to the Marriott. There was a command center. There were a hundred people there. We were just, it was beyond belief. And I had to give him, it was my turn to give him my name and my information. And his first name, I won't, his first name was Zach. I adore this man. And he said to me, look me in the face. He said to me, I promise you, Linda, that I'll always be truthful with you. And I will tell you whatever I can to this day. Mm. Okay. We went back to thank him, you know, months later. And he said, they still have nightmares. The first responders. The effects of what he said that he had to take his weapon and point it at the children, the students, and tell them, you know, hands up, don't look down. Pointing a weapon at them because they didn't want these students who were leaving the building to have to to see the carnage that was underneath them and step oh over. And he says God. he still has nightmares to this day. God. Still has all of them. I mean, there are so many victims. So many. Yeah. That's something that I think it's a great place to end because it touches everybody, whether you were there or not. Mm-hmm. And it has those ripple effects. Linda, actually, I said we're going to end, but is there anything else that you want to add that I didn't ask? No, I just want to say thank you to you and thank you to anybody who's listening who's a supporter because I could not do and go on doing the things I do without the support you know, and a lot, a lot of love from everyone else. And, and I just ask people to please stop and think about it and just be verbal. We can't just say, oh my God, there's another mass shooting. You know, what are we going to do? There's no such thing as another mass shooting. Mm -hmm. That mass shooting affects so many people. And you know what? I just, let's do something. So it just doesn't affect more people than it already has. I just, just keep your voices heard and please let's just do something for, sh- for real. Keep your voices heard. Talk, talk. And you know what? I know the election is over, but whenever there is an election, please do your homework mm-hmm. and look at what 
the person stands for, mm -hmm. especially on gun safety. And if I can just say one more thing. Absolutely. It's not gun control. It's gun safety. Words matter. Mm. We don't want to control. Mm -hmm. We just want you to be a safe gun owner. Mm -hmm. Linda Beagle Shulman, I think you're great. Thank you. And you talked about the word love. There is a lot of love around you, and I'm feeling it. And I, and I love you. I love you, too. Thank you. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.